0: Have you ever wondered how you fit in the body of Christ? How can I serve in a way that is strategic for kingdom purposes and is a Holy Spirit God-given fit in His will? And in trying to figure that out, maybe you've had to ponder, you know what, is it better for me uh, to welcome folks in the vestry, or should I serve downstairs helping the children in the nursery? Or maybe, maybe I should be tucked away where no one can see me counting the offering to help with the bursary. Now, where do I fit, and, and how do I fit? Moving from questions of our service to questions of others serving us for a moment. Have you ever had a time when the walls of life seem to be closing in? And uh, things that once seemed certain are now very uncertain. And uh, things start to creak and feel a bit bleak. and, And by God's grace, a sister in Christ came. And this person was sort of brimming with faith in the face of your problem. And they were eager to pray. With you about that problem, and it sort of just changed the whole trajectory and tenor of your day. Have you had an experience like that? And you found being around that Christian was a, was a source of great comfort. And you began to wish, gee, you know, I wish I saw every heavy quandary as an exciting opportunity to trust God entirely, pray fervently, and wait patiently. And that seems to be how this other brother or sister always responds to difficulty. Or perhaps maybe you know a brother who really knows Scripture. Uh, You read a passage and you struggle to kind of figure out, what's that all about? I don't fully understand what what the text is saying. Uh, But you go to their Bible study, and the same text you were reading that week in preparation, they open it up and it's like, wow, there it is. It's just so obvious what the Scripture is saying. They make the, the hard teachings of Scripture seem simple. They know not just what the text means, but they know what it means to do with the text, that what should we do in light of this passage? Maybe you know this kind of saint. uh, The saints that sort of kind of get overlooked when we talk about spiritual gifts. Um, These are the kind of people that are almost never up front. In fact, they would kind of rather the ground swallow them than ever having to stand up front. And, And yet, those are the kind of saints that are routinely here when the rest of us aren't. They often are the ones that come early and stay late. They come in on Saturdays to fill up great big coffee urns, and then they come back at some point and magically they're cleaned. And you don't really know who does it, but intuitively you know somebody must do it. They're the ones that put salt out on an icy day, shoveling away, so that when you come, it's all ready for you. These saints sort of quietly and inobtrusively do for others what most of us simply want done for us. They have servants' hearts, and so they just look for whatever needs doing. It's almost like they have, wait for it, the gift of helps, or something like that. In fact, the Bible says that's probably exactly what they have. Maybe you know a brother or sister who seems to have great, Biblical wisdom. When you are, you're stumped and, and you hit a bump and, and, and you go have coffee with this particular brother or sister, after listening to your predicament, they seem to always have a Scripture that's specifically, practically targeted to your predic- particular pickle. You're like, how, how, Why didn't I think of that? I, I didn't see that. They, they seem to get a word from God to them that just really is the right word in season. What's going on in each of those situations? Why are some people so incredibly effective in certain selected ministries in the body? And and, and you just almost instinctively know that's the person I would go to in that situation. You you probably all came up with people in your head, many of whom might be very different depending on where you've worshipped. And what's going on with those things is all of those things probably pertain to that person's spiritual gift. They are made by God, empowered by God, gifted by God to do certain things in the body of Christ in a way that others just can't do the same way. And and I find that when you talk about spiritual gifts, and we'll be talking about spiritual gifts for the next several Sundays because we're going to be in chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, and that deals with that subject at length. I find that it's been my experience that Christians have a lot of questions about spiritual gifts. And that's exactly the case in the church in Corinth. Today we're in 1 Corinthians 12, and it starts a discussion that says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And we've learned as we've toured Corinthians that every time Paul's talking about something, the first part of the letter he was talking about uh, problems in the church that were brought to his attention from from Chloe's household... And, and so he said, now concerning this, and now concerning divisions, and now concerning lawsuits, and, not, and then there was a section of things that the believers had questions about, and, and now concerning this, and now concerning marriage and singleness, and now. Well, now he's concerning this question from the Corinthian congregation questions about spiritual gifts. And so uh, if you would. Turn in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 12, and if you don't have a copy of Scripture, you can grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, and you should find 1 Corinthians 12 at about page 1219 of the Blue Pew Bible. As we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's ask the Lord of that Word to bless us in our time together in His text today. Lord Jesus, we invite You as Lord of the church. Holy Spirit, we invite You as the ultimate author of Scripture. We know that no prophecy was, was ultimately derived from the will of man, but the will of the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by Your movement. And that's why all Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. that The man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is why Your Word is a lamp unto our feet. We live in a world of darkness and confusion, But you are not the author of chaos, you are the author of truth. Indeed, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we look to Jesus, to life, we also look to Jesus for truth. And so Lord, we pray that in these several Sundays, this Sunday and next in chapter 12, and then in 13, and ultimately in 14, we pray that you would begin to reshape our thinking about spiritual gifts, even some of the very controversial uh, gifts that will be coming up in uh, great detail in chapter 14 in particular. Uh, Lord, help us to think biblically. uh, Help us to uh, behave charitably, but also to look at the whole counsel of God in its entirety. Help us today and next week as we just learn some basic principles about spiritual gifts, some basic truths that we would sort of have a foundation for greater discussion when we get to touchier topics later. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the Word of God says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. So a lot of Christians are ignorant. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. The Word of God wants us to be informed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led... Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So he's drawing a dichotomy between the way pagans do religion and the way Christians do religion, and when the Spirit leads you, it never leads you to something blasphemous, even if someone quite sensational says it quite sensationally. Number four. Uh, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, that is to each Christian, he wrote to brothers, to each Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit for one purpose, for the common good. That's probably worth underlining when we think about spiritual gifts. That's the purpose. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks and slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, that is the church, each of them, the individual Christians, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts in yet one body. So the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving it greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for the other. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets and third teachers and then miracles and then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer rhetorically is, of course, no. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. This is where the Corinthians are confused. They confuse the sensational with the helpful. And I will show you a still more excellent way. All right, so the first thing the Bible wants us to see this morning is that we can be uninformed, that is, ignorant about spiritual gifts, and, and worse yet, we can be misinformed about spiritual gifts. But we can, we can have things that are not biblical in our thinking on spiritual gifts that we import from, from wider religious philosophy. And so, where we take our cues on the subject of spiritual gifts will determine whether we have a biblical understanding or a sort of religious sensational understanding. And that brings us to our first point today. Point one, if we are not careful, we will import a pagan fascination with the sensational over against that which is biblical and helpful. Point one today, if we're not careful, we will unintentionally import the pagan fascination with sensational over against that which is biblical and actually helpful. Now, our first point comes from the first three verses in the introduction to the three chapters Paul's going to spend on spiritual gifts. And I'm going to tell you right now that sadly, when most people come to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14... These are the three verses they skip over to get to the meat or the good stuff. But but the Holy Spirit is is wanting us before we ever get into the subject and look at all the minutiae and and, and areas where we might have uh, discord or division or or, or difficulty or dissension, he, He wants to set it up with this foundation. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. That is, when you were just religious, you were led away from the things of God by seemingly religious things, things that were very captivating. However, you were led, meaning there were many different ways Satan deceived us in religion. Number three, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. That means there were people in the church at Corinth who were saying something sensational, and people said, He just cursed Jesus, and that's okay because He's in the Spirit. Well, no, my friend, the Word of God says no one in the Spirit is ever going to say Jesus is accursed, just as no one can truthfully from their heart say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit prompting them. So There were some pretty broken things in Corinth. People were saying stuff that was blasphemous, and they thought they were the bee's knees doing it, because they were doing it in ways that other people were spiritually impressed by. So the Holy Spirit is saying, if we're not very careful, we will import a pagan fascination with what? With the sensational, over and against what is biblical and actually helpful. Now remember the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, there were were certain saints who thought, I am the most wise in this church. Why? Because, well, I follow the most wise apostle. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. Right? And the Bible had to say, oh no, you're not wise, because wise people don't divide over personality. They thought they were wise, and they were not. Uh, there were certain saints in the church in Corinth who thought they were more enlightened than everyone else because they knew that an idol is nothing. And so then they would go to the temple and sample the meals. Now, yeah, the meal was nothing, but the meeting was something. And the Bible says, hey, that's actually a participation in the demonic. Run from that. So here are these people who thought they were so spiritual were actually quite sinful. And so too it is true that certain saints in Corinth sought themselves to be the truly spiritual ones. In fact, that is what the word literally means in verse 1. The ESV translates verse 1 as now concerning spiritual gifts, and indeed, contextually, that's what the topic is. But the literal translation is a little more jarring. It says, literally, now concerning spiritual ones. It's the word pneumatikos, and it's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 2.15 for the spiritual person who judges all things, but himself is not judged by anyone. The supposedly spiritual people that Paul said, you know what, you're not really spiritual at all. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 3, one. but I, brothers, could not address you as a spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Apparently in Corinth, as you read 2 Corinthians, There are folks who who think they're super-spiritual because they follow the super-apostles. And they don't think the actual apostles are apostles. And clearly, there are saints in our chapter, and then two chapters later, who think they're super-spiritual because they're doing something that seems sensational. Therefore, they must be the elite. So I want you to listen in again. These, three, these little verses that we skip over. Very foundational. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were lost, when you were pagans, you were led astray. That is, you were religious, but you were not biblical. How? To mute idols however you were led. Quick question. How were they led? I don't know. That's the part we forget. Because see, when this was written, they knew didn't they? Oh, I was led away to mute idols this way. I was led away, but we live 2,000 years and a couple continents away, and so we don't really know. So let me show you one way. One of the biggest ways that people were led away to mute idols in the biblical world. Starting in classical times, many people would travel to what's called the Oracle of Delphi. Have you ever heard of the Oracle of Delphi? Okay, so there was a temple, and, and this temple... Was, was, was in Delphi. And, and at this temple, someone spoke for the god Apollos. There was a priestess who spoke for the god Apollos. So that was the oracle. To speak for God means to be an oracle. And located in what city? Delphi. So they creatively called her the oracle of Delphi. Delphi. Okay, so people from all over the Greco-Roman world would travel to Delphi in classical times all the way up to biblical times and they would consult this priestess who was called the the, the Pythia. And she supposedly would speak on behalf of the god Apollos. And, and, And people sought her advice on very important matters. They would go to her and they would ask whether they should marry this person. Whether they should start this business venture. There were times where kings and rulers would go to the oracle of Delphi and ask, should I go to war? And what she said, they did. Now, really interesting... The oracle of Delphi could only prophesy when she sat on a certain seat in the temple. She wouldn't prophesy if she was over here or over there. Or over. She had to sit at this one spot. And that's it. If she didn't sit at that spot, never did she prophesy. And that's a really interesting thing. Why does she have to be at that spot? Well... Numerous classical authors, if you do the digging, you're going to see that there was a certain natural phenomenon coming up from the ground in a vent that sat on her seat. The first century geographer Strabo writes, the seat of the oracle is a cavern hollowed down into the depths. So her seat was over this hole in the ground that went way, 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 way down to the depths of somewhere. All right. The seat of the oracle is a cavern hollowed down in the depths from which arises... Now this is important. A pneuma. Pneuma is the word for spirit or or for vapor or for gas. There was a gas that would come up and if you sat in that seat, you would be sniffing that gas. And he said, "It's sitting. the seat of the oracle is a cavern hollowed out by the depths from which arises a pneuma that inspires the divine state of possession. Now it's interesting, she could never prophesy, she could never do these things if she wasn't sitting on the gas vent. And so, uh, Biblical Archaeology Review has articles about this phenomenon. And there was a published article by a group of archaeologists and toxicologists who confirmed that the gases repeatedly reported by multiple ancient writers as being the source of the Oracle of Delphi's ability to give ecstatic utterances that were then interpreted by her priests, what was happening is she was falling in a trance-like state because of probably the natural phenomenon underneath her. So they began to do tests, these archaeologists and toxicologists, and they realized she could never prophesy unless she was at the seat, what was special about the seat. And the the writers say there was this gas that came up, so they began to do research. And they found that, look, in Delphi, the, 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 the bedrock, there's a certain kind of limestone that this is where Delphi is. And it's what's called very bituminous. And what does that mean? It means it's, it's got oil in it. In fact, 20% of the limestone contained petrochemicals. Now, here's the other thing that's really interesting about Delphi. At Delphi, you have one of Greece's most active fault lines. Do you know what a fault line is? Like the San Andreas Fault, a whole lot of shaking going on. The earth's plates, they, they come next to each other. They go, how are you doing? I don't know, how are you doing? And they rub together. And when they rub together, the ground shakes. But also, if you rub rocks together underground, under great pressure, it gets hot. And what happens if you heat rocks full of gas? Gas escapes. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so the very same ancient writers who are observing this seeping up of this special holy vapor that gave the oracle her ability to enter into a trance and say all these different ecstatic utterances that were supposedly God's will for your life, well, the toxicologists joined the archaeologists and they began to say, well, what kind of gases are being emitted? And they were able to prove that it's three basic gases. Methane, ethane, and ethylene. Now, what do we know about methane, ethane, and ethylene? They're all intoxicants. Ancient sources describe two distinct types of prophetic trances experienced by the Pythia, by the oracle. Normally, she would lapse into sort of a semi-benign consciousness. And she would remain uh, seated on the tripod and she would respond to questions with a with a strangely altered voice. And according to the, to the writer Plutarch, once the Pythia recovered from this trance, uh, she was in a composed and relaxed state like a runner who had just completed a race. So, so that's one trance that she would get in. The second kind of trance was rarer. And she would get in sort of a a frenzied delirium characterized by wild motions of her limbs and and harsh groanings and and all these words that made no sense, this gibberish and these ecstatic utterances and cries. And then her priest would say, oh, that means you should marry this person or you should go to war. They would helpfully step in and tell you what it meant. And really interesting, when she would really get all ecstatic and all that, she would usually die within a couple days. And they would appoint a new Pythia. That's how it worked. Now, there's a good deal of evidence that uh, what you have happening here might be ethylene intoxication. In the early 20th century, laboratory tests using human subjects as we were trying to discover different kinds of anesthesiology, there was a pioneering uh, anesthesiologist named Isabella Herb, and she used ethylene to try to help patients that needed surgery. She found that ethylene works twice as fast as nitrous oxide, which is laughing gas, and it achieved similar effects with only half the quantity. So it seemed very promising at the time of her research. In high concentrations, well, it produced complete unconsciousness. In low concentrations, a trance-like state. Ultimately, we stopped using ethylene because if a teeny tiny spark happened, the OR exploded. And that was a downside to ethylene. So we said, maybe not, and we found another way. Now, what else was there? There was ethylene, there was methane, and, uh, and there was ethane. And what do we know about those three chemicals? Well, how many of you have ever heard of huffers? Huffers are these young people, often in very destitute parts of the world, who open up correction fluid, or aerosols, or paints, or gasoline, and they huff it. And it blows their brains out. It kills their brain cells. It gives them a tremendous euphoric high, and it kills a whole bunch of brain cells. And basically, that's what's coming up this vent to the oracle of Delphi. Now, whether she was demonically empowered, because people came for centuries to hear what she had to say, so she must have been right enough of the time, or whether this was just, like, hippies tripping and people listening. I don't know. That was one of the main ways that they were led astray in their area by mute idols. Ecstatic utterances that no one could verify, that priests would then interpret, crazy movements, and trances. Now, what do we know about the struggles of the Corinthian church? Well, uh, we know that the Corinthian church was very worldly. We know the Corinthian church was very experience-oriented, very self-oriented. So if you have a worldly, experienced, self-oriented congregation, and you have those kind of proclivities... Can you begin to understand what Paul is warning against in our introduction? Hey, guys, now concerning spiritual gifts. Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however, you were led. Someone supposedly spiritual was in their congregation doing something supposedly spiritual, something quite sensational, something fascinating, something that got everyone's attention. And yet they were saying things like, Jesus is a curse in their moment of ecstatic jubilation and sensation. And Paul says, hey, you know what? The Holy Spirit's never going to say that. In fact, people are only going to say from their heart that Jesus is Lord if the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts. And so Paul says, you know what? Instead of being blown away by the sensational and unintentionally carried away by the diabolical, remember they were led astray by mute idols, and behind the mute idols, he's already told us, are what? Demonic entities. Paul says, you know what? You need to keep your head in all this, church. And you need to focus on Jesus, not the sensational church. You need to be biblical, not sensational. It's the pagans who are sensational. It's the saints who are biblical. Because if we are not careful, church, we can import a a pagan fascination with the sensational over against what is biblical and ultimately, therefore, what is helpful. And so, we need to let the Word of God inform us about the worship of God. And we need to make sure that it's always Jesus and never us that's the center of our worship. Those are kind of important verses, aren't they, when we think about the next three chapters? Because people get into all kinds of different sides of stuff and we'll have to go through those things over the next several Sundays, but, but I want you to see this platform that he lays down to think about to frame everything he's about to say. One of the things that the Bible is really clear on is the God-given purpose for our spiritual gifts is never our own satisfaction. It is always the common good. Let's look at point two. This is going to show us this. Spiritual gifts gifts are God-given endowments of various divine enablements for His church's betterment. Spiritual gifts are God-given endowments of various divine enablements for His church's betterment. Look at verses 4-7. to He's going to use a whole bunch of different words to describe the different kinds of spiritual gifts in the body. He says, now there's varieties of gifts. That's the first word. But the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service. That's the second word. But the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. That's the third word. And there's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what purpose? For the common good. It's never for just my good. It's always for the good of the body. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. Right now, I want to talk about those differences, and then we'll talk about the unifier. The differences, gifts, service, and activities. The Bible says God gives these gifts. And these gifts are going to come in numerous varieties. And the word for varieties is diaroses, and it means literally to divide. And so you could say that the Holy Spirit divvies up spiritual gifts and distributes them around the church. He divvies them up sovereignly and intentionally and wisely. Now in verse 5 we're told there are varieties of services but the same Lord. And the word services is a word you do know. It's, uh, it's diakoni uh, from which we get the word deacon. And, and, and it means that these gifts are going to be used in service to Jesus. How? In service to one another. We serve Jesus by serving one another. Remember, Jesus' words to us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, so service vertically, God-honoring worship becomes horizontally distributed not to ourselves, but unto others. You see, because all the, the Bible is like a spider web. All the threads connect to each other, and that's why it holds together. And critics can throw rocks at this passage or that passage or this doctrine, and it doesn't fall because it's all together. It's not bolted on, it's strung together so it hangs together and it holds together. So the word diakonia tells us it's about service to Jesus in service to others. But you've got to remember the carnal Corinthians what did they want to be? They wanted to be seen as super spiritual. They liked what was flashy, not not necessarily what was healthy. They readily followed folks in 2 Corinthians who claimed to be super apostles. And they rejected the words of actual apostles. Paul, who established their church? And they listened to this other joker because he was sensational. In like manner... It would seem that they clamored for gifts that that made themselves stand out. They wanted a peacock. They wanted the gifts that looked exotic. Hear me! Notice me! But God's Word says, you know what? All these gifts are given in service to Jesus through service to others. And remember, Jesus loves service, doesn't He? The Bible tells us Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve. And He was the Lord of everything. We should go and do likewise. In fact, the Bible says in humility, we ought to count others more significant than ourselves. It's the exact opposite of what they were doing in Corinth. We should not only look out for our own interests, but the Bible says we should look out for the interests of others. And then in verse 6, we're told varieties of gifts, varieties of service. Here's the third one. varieties of activities. But it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And activities is the word inergema. Inergema. And it has the idea of an activity that impacts somebody else. That impacts another. The idea is inergema impacts another. All right. so let's review. Verse 5 says our gifts ought to lead us to service for Jesus that serves others. Do you know what that sounds like? That sounds like ministry. And then uh, verse 6 says our gifts ought to not leading us to feel high and mighty, but, but to what? To kingdom building activity. In Erguma, various kinds of activities that impact others. So verse 5 is saying it's ministry. Verse 6 is saying it's ministry. Verse 7. Verse 7 says our gifts are not given to us primarily for us, but specifically for others. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what purpose? For the common good. Never for my good, primarily. It is good for me. But it's primarily for the common good. Scripture talks about one another. But we talk about me, I, us. My personal walk with Jesus. Friends, if you have a spiritual gift, you're going to benefit from it. That's great. But that's not why you have your spiritual gift. That's not what the Bible says why you have the spiritual gift. Let's pretend I have the gift of teaching, which after this Sunday is debatable. Right? But let's pretend I have the gift of teaching. I may benefit tremendously from the hours I spend in my study interpreting Scripture, but God never gave me that gift so that I would hoard it and hide it and just sit in a study and study Scripture and grow and grow and never share it. God gave the gift of teaching so that someone would have the time and the ability to really unpack the Word of God and then to go and share it with everyone else. That's why He gave the gift of teaching. If you have the gift of administration, and some people do, they can take chaos and make order. In fact, they can color-cord the chaos so that even people who like chaos go, I think I want her order. Right? And, and so, if you have the gift of an administration, let me tell you why God didn't give you the gift. He didn't give you the gift of administration so that you can run other people's lives and, and direct them, uh, breathe in, breathe out, do this, do that, color code it this way Did you send your TPS form. He gave you the gift of administration so that in the body of Christ, the ministries of Christ can run decently and in order. And there are people with other gifts who need your gift because they might be excellent at helps and terrible at organization. And the person with the gift of administration, if they use their gift to help the person with the gift of helps do it in a more organized way. Do you follow? God gave that gift so that kingdom ventures run smoothly. So we are efficient and on-mission Christians. Because the Bible says we can also be inefficient and unproductive. And so we all need each other. God intentionally didn't give each of us all the gifts. He said, no, I'm going to make you have to work together. I'm going to make Jerry this way, and he's going to really need Larry. And Larry's going to need Mary. And Larry, Mary, and Jerry can make it work. But otherwise, the church is going to be deeply missing key components that cause it to function well. We use gifts to serve Jesus. And the gift that most obviously shows this is the gift of helps. What is the gift of helps? Well, definitionally, it's a gift that helps others. By God's grace, these saints, who are often unheralded in the church, will they quietly come up and they come alongside other brothers and sisters and they do whatever needs being done. And they do it joyfully and cheerfully and often unnoticedly. Do they benefit? That's really interesting. Have you ever met somebody with the gifts of helps who cleans up vomit after the three-year-old barfed everywhere at VBS, And they do it with joy. Like, they're singing this little hymn while they're cleaning up vomit, and you're like, well, that's barf, that's gross, I'm out of here, Gifted to teaching, see you later. Uh, and this person's over here, you know, amazing grace, and I'm like, amazing mess, don't step there. And how is that? Well, yeah, they benefit, they're using their gifts, and when we use our gifts, we feel like we're built, this is the puzzle piece that I am, and we enjoy it, but you know what? It's primarily for others, not for self. You do get a benefit using your gifts, but you use your gifts for Jesus, for others for Jesus, for others. You know what we can do with our gifts, though? We can bury them. Don't let anybody know you have this gift that they'll ask you to serve in that ministry. Now, in verse 4, we're told there are varieties of gifts. And that's a different word than activities and services. Varieties of gifts. This is the word charismaton, charismaton. Uh, from which we get, uh, the root is charis, and charis means grace in the Bible. And so these different gifts, divvied up by the Holy Spirit, the Bible wants us to understand these are grace gifts. These are grace gifts. This is God graciously giving them to us. That means we didn't earn them, so we can't really brag about them. But I know Christians that do, right? We didn't earn them, so we can't brag about them. And secondly, God must sovereignly give them. And that brings you to point three. God gives our spiritual gifts to us sovereignly. God gives our spiritual gifts to us sovereignly. It is not something we can earn by merit or learn by effort. God gives it to the body sovereignly, so it's not something we can earn by merit or learn by effort. There's a difference between a spiritual gift and a skill. There's a difference between your spiritual vocation uh, as it were, your, your spiritual gift and your professional vocation. I know people who teach very well calculus. They don't teach Sunday school very well. They're clearly gifted teachers. They might even be teacher of the year. And yet, when they teach the Bible, it's not the same. Do you know why? Because that involves a spiritual gift. Yeah. Now, it is true that there are certain practices that you can follow in any kind of teaching, and that'll work across, just like there's best practices in administration that churches can learn from, But it's also true that there are certain people that just come at this almost intuitively, naturally, and it's really supernaturally. And that's their grace gift. Look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each Christian individually as the Holy Spirit wills it. That is, God is going to sovereignly say, you get this gift, and you get this gift, and you get this gift, and I'm going to put you in this body for this time, for this reason, and it's a very interesting way God does it. Did you know God is God and we are not God? Did you know that? And and did you know that God in grace blesses His church with gifted saints to best edify the people at that moment for such a time as this? In that location. God is committed to sanctifying you and He's going to use other people and their gifts to help make that happen in your life. And so that means, as a believer, God intends to use you and me. If He just wanted us to go to heaven, you'd get saved and disappear. But you're here because He has a purpose for you to do the good works that He has prepared in advance, Scripture says. And the passage that talks about you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, in Ephesians 2, why? You're saved for a purpose. The purpose is to do the good works that God has already set out for you. You don't have to go find these and dream them up. And God has a plan for you. Get on His plan. God intends to use you and me. Now, each of us will be used differently because we have different gifts and different eras and different services. But those are always going to be for the same purpose. Our gifts are always going to be used to glorify Jesus through serving others. And if I'm using my gifts and Jesus isn't glorified and others aren't served, I'm either misusing my gifts or I'm not doing anything at all. People may applaud me. People may want to be like me. But Jesus isn't in it. Because spiritual gifts are always used to glorify God through serving others. Look at verse 28. This is where it's going to set us straight. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing and helping and administering in various kinds of tongues. So is everybody an apostle, or all prophets, or all teachers? Do all work in miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? the answer is clearly no. And so he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. What I want you to see from that passage is, God chooses what you're going to get. We don't choose it. He chooses it. And that should be really good news. But I find that saints don't see it that way. Because Satan whispers, you don't have this gift, and wouldn't it be better if you had this gift, and don't you wish you had this gift? But it should be really good news that I'm not in charge of my spiritual gift. God is. So instead of being jealous of others because of their gift, or being petty because I have this gift, or wishing our church had what it needed, and we're less blessed because He hasn't given us this gift, we ought to say, wait a minute, God is sovereign here. And so if there's something our body needs, we need to begin praying that God would give us people with the gift of evangelism or administration or helps or service. Or Do you follow? Because He's building His church and it's going to be unshakable against even the gates of hell. And if something's missing, it means one of two things. We either need to be praying and sharing Christ that God would bring in that gift, or somebody here has the gift and we're hiding. That's what it means. Because He is a good God and He's building a good church the all-wise God wisely bestows what only He truly knows each church needs. And namely, which gift in which saint is best suited in our midst for such a time as this. I want you to look at how God built the church in Acts and just look at one little thing he did. God said, You know, I'm going to go to the Gentiles and they don't know anything about this, and I'm going to go and I'm going to plant churches in places that are hostile, that don't know anything, and I'm going to go there and we're going to establish churches sometimes in a few weeks, sometimes in a few months, in the most time a few years. And how did he do that? He took a guy named Barnabas, that's not his real name, but he was such an encourager that they called him encourager. And who did Barnabas get paired with? Paul. Paul wasn't an encourager. He was an exhorter. Like, he knew doctrine. Like, he could write Romans. Like, you know, he's Paul. But when you have an owie, nobody says, would you go get Paul so he could chasten me with the Word of God? We need a Paul because the churches were messed up. He was bold. He was willing to be beaten. He was willing to be tortured. He, he could explain doctrine forwards and backwards. You shake Paul and he's like, oh, you want to know about some esoteric part of... And he would start talking about it. But you also needed Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas were an amazing one-two punch. Some loved people into the kingdom. The others explained to them what the kingdom was. And the same God that built an unshakable church in very shaky territory in the book of Acts, in a a culture that was hostile, in a world that was ignorant, in an empire that was against, God built a church that's still here 2,000 years later by sovereignly assigning simple people one or more gifts, And they used them together to the glory of God and the good of their neighbor, And the church was powerfully built. So what does that mean for us? Well, God has blessed Calvary Church with with outgoing saints. You might know some, Jerry, Who meet us at the gates. And God has also blessed us with introverts who comb over minutia that no one else sees but keeps us out of the weeds. God has blessed Calvary Church with teachers who can explain and deacons and deaconesses who sustain so we're never alone in our pain. God is an excellent engineer. God knew to put ears on top and rears on the bottom. He knew to make our feet able to callous. So if we walk, they get this thick callous so we can walk without shoes many miles and keep going. But He also knew that they had to be strong enough to carry our weight and maybe our kids' weight and maybe, maybe some food along the way. But then he made our tongues totally different. Like, like, our feet get calloused and we can walk over hard things and hard places. And blessed are the feet of those who bring the gospel. And you think about what those feet look like in the first century. And you're like, <laughs> right? But then our tongues are totally different. Our tongues are delicate and sensitive. Why? So that we can make just the right words, just the right way to lead people to Jesus. And when we have fellowship with one another, we can break bread and really enjoy it. Thank God for taste buds, right? You don't get a body like this without loving taste buds. So I'm very grateful for taste buds. Since God is good and His design is good and He made the body good, He also made the church body good. And He's sovereignly placing you and I in this church so this church would do everything God has planned for it to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Now since God gives our spiritual gifts to us sovereignly, It's not something we earn by merit or learn by effort. The Bible also says this is true. So we don't earn it and we can't learn it, but it does say that we're to eagerly seek what? The greater gifts. So there is a greater and lesser gift. And the Corinthians thought the greater gifts were the peacock, showman, sensational gifts that might actually have been pagan. The Bible's going to tell us in chapter 14 that the greater gifts are the ones that help the greatest number glorify Jesus. The gifts that help others the most not the ones that look the most impressive. The Bible also says we can fan into flame the gift of God. So there is an element where I cooperate with the Holy Spirit. He sovereignly gives me a gift, and I'm responsible to not just use it, but harness it and grow it. But I don't get to choose it. You have to embrace it. You have to accept it. These are grace gifts. God sovereignly gives them. We are accountable, therefore, for how we use them. Some saints bury them. Some saints weaponize them. They use their gifts to get what they want in the church instead of giving Jesus what He deserves through the church. That brings us to point four. God distributes His gifted people in ways He knows will best build up the church. God distributes... His gifted people in the church in ways that He knows will best build the church. You see this in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, well, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. And if we were all a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Friends, do you know this means you has a, a direct implication on where you worship on Sunday? As North Americans, we think, I'm going to go to the church that best meets my needs. I'm going to go to the church that's the shortest drive. I'm going to go to the church that has the best left-handed, red-headed midget ministry because that's important to me. That's how we do church. But theologically, biblically, look at Corinthians. Hey, one of the things we have to ask ourselves is if God is sovereignly gifting each local church based on the gifts that we have, has God put me in this church and is there a ministry for me in this church and that's maybe why I'm in this church. We tend to think church is about us. The Bible thinks church is about Jesus and ministering to one another. One of those two is right. And one of them isn't. So if God sovereignly gives us each gifts, and if those gifts are needed for His church to function, then the decision where our family worships has deep implications on whether the local church will be all that God wants it to be in that community. Doesn't it? 1 Peter 2.5 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves, as Christians, are like living stones and you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is laying us together as stones. Not so that we can be a monument, but so we can be a movement. We're going to be a royal priesthood. What do priests do? They intercede on behalf of God to others. Of the love of the God that they're in communing with. If we're living stones in God's spiritual house, what's going to happen when bricks are missing? If we're stones, if I have a wall of stones, and I take out the middle stone, what's going to happen? Maybe nothing. You could take a brick or two out. But if I take out a certain number of bricks, at some point the wall no longer holds its weight and it comes down. Uh, If I have holes in the wall, what can come in? Enemies? Vermin? The things the wall is supposed to keep out because parts of the wall are missing, they come in. You're vital to the work of the kingdom of God. And if you weren't, you'd already be in heaven today. Satan has got the American church so confused. The church is about me and what I get out of church. No, no, no. church is about Jesus and what you can give for Him so that others can meet Jesus and grow in Jesus. Our passage today, the Spirit pauses to say this. Verse 14, The body does not consist of one member, but of many. The foot should not say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would make it Would that make it any less a part of the body? And the ear should not say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as He chose. So Weird Harold is here because God has a purpose for him. If you're not sure who that is, you might be Weird Harold, but that's okay. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need to you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. There are people in the body that we don't always see, but we don't always know what they're really doing. Some of those people may be the real prayer warriors here, and they go home and spend lots of time on their knees. Some of our shut-ins, you go, well, I don't see them anymore, but some of them pray more than the people that aren't shut-in. You don't know how valuable these kingdom assets are to the king. So do whatever you're built to do for the king. And those parts of the body we think are honorable, we have bestowed greater honor. Oh, they're important. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it that there may be no division in the body. That the members may have the same care for one another. You think about that greater honor to the parts that lacked it. In Scripture, God gives a lot of Special calculus to the least and the last and the lost, to the widow, to the destitute, to the orphan. Those are not the parts that we would honor in our flesh. But those are the parts that our king honors because he is spirit. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually, members of it. So Satan's going to tell us, your contribution doesn't matter. Your service won't really be missed this Sunday. You're kind of Calvary's pancreas. Nobody's excited about a pancreas. Nobody can find the pancreas, even on the doctor game, the operation. There's no pancreas. There's a bread basket. There's a heart. There's no pancreas. You're invisible, and you don't matter. Stay home this Sunday. Bedside Baptist is calling. They're having their sleepy-eyed sunrise service. But you know what? If you were to take away the body's pancreas, you're going to quickly see that what's less visible is quite vital. And the body begins to have a whole series of cascading problems. And so it is with being regular in God's house, regularly using our gifts to God's glory and our neighbor's goods. This world is very deceitful. Its pull is inevitable and it's inexorable. But God has a solution to our soul's pollution. And it's this. Hebrews 3.13. Hebrews 3.13. We're to encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today, that is until Jesus comes back, so that none of you may be hardened by... I've been in ministry for half of my life and I've noticed a thing. I've noticed that you show me a believer who's starting to crumble, I'll show you a believer who's stopped being in a Bible-believing fellowship and stopped using their gifts. Now, not every believer who stops going to church or stops going to a Bible-believing church or or stops using their gifts immediately crumbles. But everybody who's walked into my office who's usually had it all fall apart in self-inflicted ways, it started with the decision to say what God says is central is peripheral and what God says is vital isn't true for me. And if you're going to be constantly bombarded by the teachings of this world who's pressing you into its mold and not under the truth of God, you're going to begin to believe lies. Then you're going to behave lies and then you're going to get a reaping of those lies in the people that you love the most. That's just how it works. It's like gravity. Hebrews 3.13 says we're to encourage one another. When you come to church, make it your mission to encourage somebody. Not discourage, not disparage, not cluck, not tut, but encourage somebody. And you do it till Jesus comes back so your brother doesn't get hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 10.24 is another important verse. Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the book of Hebrews was written and the temple was still standing. When was the temple destroyed? AD 70. When did Jesus die and resurrect? About 33, right? So we're talking not even how many years between the book of Hebrews being written and Jesus dying. Very short period of time. 30, 40 years. okay. Within a very short period of time, the church of the living God, blood-bought saints, were getting out of the habit of gathering together. Or he wouldn't have had to write that verse to them. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's what church does. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see Jesus and his day approaching. In our prospective members class, if you come to our prospective members class, we're going to tell you a lot of things. We're going to share a lot of things with you. We're going to tell where we're going, what we're about, what we believe, how we're going to try and walk together under the authority of the word of God. Uh, But one of the things we're going to ask you to do, if you decide to become a member, you don't have to become a member. You can come to Calvary Church for a very long time, and we're not going to throw you out. But if you decide, I want to become a member, we are going to ask you to do two things. We're going to ask you to attend church faithfully as long as health and proximity permit. you're sick, you get a free pass. you're out of town, you get a free pass. But as long as health and proximity permit, and we're going to ask you to find one place of service for Jesus. Not a hundred, one. Some of you may feel like it's more than one, and we'll talk about that, but we ask everyone to find one place of service and that they would come. Why? Because that's church. 1 Corinthians 12, that's church. You're in this body. If God has called you to this body, He's called you so that you would help your brother not stumble in a world. That you would encourage that brother, that you would use your gifts to the glory of God, and when they use that, your, that, their gift, they'll come alongside you at your point of weakness. God has made us not just totally dependent on Jesus, He's made us interdependent on one another. We struggle believing that we're dependent on Jesus, and we reject that we are dependent on one another. And that is why our lives are hard. Because we don't want to do it His way. And the Bible seems to teach here an old maxim that many hands make light work. And the same is true in the church. If everybody uses their gift to the glory of God, at times with the Sabbath rest, we talk about that in the class as well, then all the work of God that we're asked to do will get done. Not all the work we could dream up as being super church that needs to be super busy with super programs, but all the work the Holy Spirit wants us to do will get done. And no one will get crushed along the way. So what I'd like for us to do is to pray about this. Because in many churches, a few are crushed, so many can sit, soak, and sour for an hour. Now that's not Calvary Church. I'm so grateful here that almost all of you, when, when Wayne was trying to do the schedule and it's become a nightmare, you know why? It's because so many of you serve in so many different areas that we can't put you in the same place the same Sunday. So we're doing really well here. I'd like for you to turn to your neighbor and pray to your Savior about what we've talked about this morning. Pray that God would help the saints at Calvary Church who don't yet know their spiritual gift to discover them. That that we would use our gifts to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. That we would view church as about Jesus and not us. That we would be a church that encourages one another daily. How many of you get discouraged during the week? How many of you wish you came to church and got encouraged? Don't put your hand up, it's all of you. And I don't think we'll do it if we just sit around and wish it. I think we have to ask the God of the heavens who can do something that's above us, beyond us, and in spite of us. He can turn us into a people who are encouragers in a day that isn't very encouraging. Would you pray with your neighbor in a few minutes? I'll close this. Lord Jesus, you, You've heard the prayers of Your people, and we're about to enter into Your table in just a moment. Think about Your Son and His sacrifice. And we come to You today, from where I stand, it's just a jumbling of words I couldn't make out in the cacophony of saints praying one into another. It was unintelligible to me because they were all praying simultaneously, but You heard every single one of those prayers. You don't have any problem processing while You govern the universe And we believe that You are a good and gracious God and You have designed the church and You desire for the church to thrive. And We may not be able to have any impact in how that church works globally to the ends of the earth, but we have a lot of what we can do to help this church bring You honor and glory. You've put us here. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would take the prayers that have been given and that this would be a church that encourages one another daily. I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would help us to to find our spiritual gifts in the way that You want us to do them at the very moment, Lord. That we wouldn't overextend some and burn them out, but we also wouldn't have others rust out, wear out, and be hidden out. Lord, we we understand that the devil is more crafty than any beast of the field, that he is the, the deceiver and indeed the father of lies, and he whispers in our ears so powerfully with his brimstone whisper that we're not needed, and this service doesn't make any difference, and... Why are you going through all this effort? And you could be watching the game. And the world squeezes us into its mold. And it has a whole set of values that seem so true because we see the world. But you tell us to live for an unseen world, that we are citizens of a different country, a far country, a country that we would never want to revoke our citizenship in once we see it. And yet, right now, it's hard to remember that we are your ambassadors and we are citizens of heaven. Your Word tells us that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So externally from the world and the devil and internally from our own hearts, it's, it's easy to have a competition with that which is actually worthwhile and good. And so Lord, I pray that You would help Calvary Church to be a safe place, a good place, a godly place where we would encourage one another, that we would kind of go out of our way to say something, when we see something in someone that is worth affirming, whatever is good and just and true and upright and noble, that we would, we would share that how much we appreciate that person and their gift and their service. I also pray, Lord Jesus, that when we would see people that seem to be not themselves, that they're hurting, they're carrying something, they're quiet, they've had an issue this week, that we might be a people that are bold enough to initiate love and not just off to the side go, gee, that person looks like they're hurting. I hope it works out for them. Lord, give us a holy boldness for Jesus. Give us a, a, a divine promptings and the courage to be strong and courageous and to act on them. I pray, Lord Jesus, now as we come to Your table that we would think of Your Son and reflect deeply on Your love for us, that it might give us a love for others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.